We are live. This is Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlyle, joined as always by Jake Taylor. Special guest today, Jeff Weniger. He's the head of equity strategy at Wisdom Tree. How are you, yeah. Jeff? Well, I'm doing okay. I'm ready to roll. I love, uh, I, I follow Jeff really closely on Twitter. He's got a fantastic Twitter account, and we've had a few, we've done some spaces and some other things. So I, I, I love chatting to Jeff. So welcome aboard. Um, Pleasure. What, what does your what does your role at at Wisdom Tree? What do you, what do you sort of what's your remit? What do you uh, what do you do? What, there? You, what would you say you do here? <laughs> <laughs> that's an office space reference. Very nice. Uh, that's got Netflix. Got to be twenty five years old at this point. Well, we do a lot of macro um, commentary, written reports, that type of thing uh, to support the business. I mean, at this point, the Wisdom Tree ETFs were launched seventeen years ago. And so there's a lot of speaking with advisors, trying to guide people, people saying, look, this is what I'm looking to do. Uh, this is one of my, my, my thoughts. These are my concerns. You get 90 ETFs over there, guide me. So there's a lot of that type of thing. Um, we put a lot of prognostications out on things like Fed policy and inflation. Who knows whether or not we have the right answers. You know, it's like the crystal ball stuff is, can, can be difficult from time to time, but um yeah, big picture thinking about markets, value investing, growth investing, all these various interrelationships. You seem to cover you cover some macro stuff as well as some uh, value stuff. Are you a value guy at heart? At heart, absolutely. Well, that's why I joined the shop. I, I got into Wisdom Tree over six years ago. Um, at this point, at various stages in my career, value has had some flickerings of light but generally speaking <laughs> generally speaking you know this you know i'm in my early 40s for the, the greater part of my cognitive awareness growth has beaten value it's a you you start to wonder where, whether there will be a reversion to the mean at some point i mean basically depending on which index you're looking at you could start in 1993 with the S&P 500 growth beating value for the rest of that decade and basically only value working from oh, what, 2000 to 07. Uh, other than that, you can get six-month and 12-month windows. We had 2022 working for us in value. And you say to yourself, I mean, if you can position a career in value and it does <laughs> do what it did in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and yeah. the 80s. Yeah might be sitting pretty i mean we'll have to we'll have to see if it, if it comes to pass maybe what we needed was to get away from this super easy silliness of a, of a monetary regime and i think maybe we are away from that we'll see welcome to the pod this is exactly what we talk oh, about oh, every and while so, that's <laughs> J- jt and i are like uh we we joke that we're is this is jt's joke that i'm stealing but it was he says that we're we're momentum value guys we got right on the momentum bus just as the uh yeah, 2007, just, just as trend. I was about ready to we crash into the, the wall. <laughs> I read, I read all the stuff in the late 1990s, and then started watching it from like you know to 2000s through to 2007. I was like, all right, this is pretty easy. You just buy the low multiple stuff, and off you go. Easy game. Uh, <laughs> Turns out it's a bit tougher than that. It works over the long term, but how long is this long term that you're speaking of? Yeah, well, I mean, the dividend stuff, when we look at the single studies from 1957 to the present, that is accretive through time. And what, what you found in the last quarter century or so is a lot of where you, it seems to be where you get your alpha is in these bear markets. And, and you know, I mean, mm-hmm. this is the nature of the bears because, I mean, we've had, I mean, the last one in 2022 wasn't as ugly as the two prior bear markets, right? And, and, you know, the dot-com one just takes takes the cake with the NASDAQ down 77%, just how much alpha was generated and things like small cap value just by generally avoiding that. I mean, I think, I think the S&P 600 value was up in that bear market. It was up. I think you had to take out a microscope to see how much. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It still counts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you know, the, the, the thing about value I mean, I, I talk to advisors for a living, and a lot of what it is is, I mean, think about it. I'm communicating to the advisor, and the advisor is communicating to the end client. And it's, you know, you deal with human beings, and a lot of it is just the phone rings to chew out that advisor. 
at the worst possible time, probably the time that you should be getting max overweight risk assets in general. And it's, I think a lot of the appeal of value is just keeping you in the course, staying you in your lane so that how much stuff got taken out in 22 down 80, 90%, this unprofitable garbage. And so people in value took their lumps, but nothing like what was happening in, in speculative biotech. And well, forget the meme stocks, that stuff is all, that's just a, it's ridiculousness. But, you know, and you get people that get absolutely burned. I mean, I remember at the turn of the century with .com, there was people, they, they basically didn't get any part of that 02 to 07 bull market because they were so rattled. And the other thing that we can't maybe conceptualize because I'm, you know, like, I think you guys are roughly, roughly my age, is if you got clocked in the 73-74 bear, you're basically just telling the story, right? So it's difficult for me to conceptualize the psychology of the 73-74 bear because I wasn't even alive yet, let alone alive and paying attention to that bear market. All I know is what happens from what I've read. And who wasn't riding the 1982 to 2000 bull market because they completely threw in the towel in overpriced nifty 50, 30, 40, 50 times earnings stuff. I think that's something you have to really, really be caught. It's very true. I spoke to a lot of people post-2009, even by 2012, who were burned and looking for their opportunity to get back in the market. Now, waiting for it to get cheap, which you know we know that it didn't ever happen. So I don't know where they are now. At some point, I guess they got back in. 2023, 2021. Yeah, it's... Wow. it's it- let me give some shout outs. I've got, got to give a shout out to the uh, to the crew. We got geography S- lesson. Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic. What's up? Samson's in the house, Glenview, Illinois. Gulf of Mexico, <laughs> Doha, London. What's up? Julius Caesar in the uh, back in the empire. Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, Toronto, Gothenburg, Sweden. St. Louis, Perth in the house. All right. What's up? Mississippi. Cool. Jeff, have Welcome you seen? Um, I'm just curious, kind of for my own, my own amusement or or edification. But have you seen like a? Has there been an attrition of advisors who would kind of self-identify as value? Like, has it really been what Einhorn has said about how like that basically like everyone who is doing fundamental analysis went extinct? I Einosaurs is what I jokingly have called it. <laughs> yeah, I might be biased. Because I'm talking to advisors that have self-selected into owning the wisdom tree stuff. Okay. So this is so a, I, not a good cross sample of the entire. But I'll, I'll tell you this. I, you know, sometimes you'll hear things and observe things that will, you'll leave an office and you'll say, whoa, I can't believe the person at the other side of that table said such and such. Mm. And I'll tell you. I'll say from about 2018, clear through when everything was just going but just berserk during the COVID money era when it was basically all the stay-at-home stuff and you're running dividend screens and tough times. It was not, I wouldn't say frequent, but every once in a while, I mean, a lot of it was going back into an elevator. So a lot of it was before COVID because during COVID, we were doing Zoom calls. You get back in the elevator with the person you just went into and say, I can't believe that guy just said, value can never beat growth. Mm. Because you say, whoa, that guy was 50 years old with a big book of business. Been doing this probably since he joined a, a team at age 1993. <laughs> yeah. Saying value can never beat growth. It's like, well, wait a minute. What about when dot-com completely unraveled? And during the jobless recovery of 02, 03, 04, the credit bubble, when we had, at one point, guys, I want to say HSBC was like the third or fourth largest dividend payer in the whole planet Earth. That's all 05, 06, 07 stuff. And that's a window of time where I'd have to, Think about the individual names, but the Ebays and Intels and Cisco's and AOLs of the world were totally dead. So, so you're sitting here and you're you're talking to somebody who's fifty or fifty five. They they say point blank, look you in the eye, 
Value can never beat growth. And then, and then you say, why, why do you even take the meeting? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, we're running these dividend screens and, and you're claiming value can never beat growth. And I think a lot of them have found a little bit of religion. Uh, there were some speculative juices that were, were flowing. I mean, Doge, Dogecoin was like $7 billion and it was never anything other than a complete joke. There was never a moment in time where, I don't, what's the market cap of Dogecoin now? I have no idea. I, nobody even talks about I'll it. I'll ask for the hive yeah, mind. The hive mind will get it for us here. Just give them a minute. Put it into the chat box. I mean, it wasn't even like, oh, Dogecoin is the next big thing. It's going to be the next Bitcoin. Let me bid it up. It was from day one, a joke. That's the extreme by which the, the I guess the monetary juices were just so stimulative that why bother? Why bother trying to find tried and true businesses when you can take these speculative endeavors? Somebody's got the next big thing. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Well, how, how would you characterize this most recent? So 10 bill. Chris Beck says 10 bill. Thank you. <laughs> the market cap of Doge's yeah. tree fitty. Good one. <laughs> Wait, Doge, Doge is worth more than the number I cited? Ten, I ten, oh, 10 billion we got. Yeah. 10 <laughs> with a B. That's good. That's big money. How would you characterize? So we had 2022. Was a, I thought we were sort of coming back to reality a little bit. We were waking yeah. up after the Coachella or whatever it was. <laughs> with a hangover. For a few years. 2022, long hangover, but, you know, it didn't quite clear the decks. And then probably from late 2022 to today, really, or yesterday, we've seen this. Uh, are we rebubbling? Is that the word? Well, you know, it's it's one of these things with the, the market right now. And, and I guess maybe it's almost like micro term, 30 to 60 to 90 day stuff. But one of the, and I don't know if it's correct, but I can at least tell you what the, the mentality is, is that you've got the debt ceiling coming up and there is this mentality of, well, how are my T-bills going to be paid? Am I going to receive it just with a delay? That's that's not good. That's actually horrendous, but it's not the end of the world. And so maybe I'll just go park it up here at the top of the S&P 500 in these five or seven names that I know. Um, but at this point, you have some of those names are trading at 50, 60 times earnings. It, and I guess it's just kind of like, well, if I wake up in the morning, I know that that company will still exist, right? 99.999% probability that that is the case. And so part of that is, is the, the source of the mellow. However, guys, you know, Japanese equities are kicking butt and so are European equities. So that, that story doesn't really jive completely. I mean, if, if you see, I mean, heck, what was I seeing? I want to say like a 10 year Greek bond. Well, I was just looking at it. it was, it's, Ask somebody for the quote on the 10-year Greek bond. It's south of, <laughs> it's south of four. So, I mean, it, it, in terms of um, uh, sentiment with respect to the European project, that's kind of come around. The European equities are getting a, a, a boost. I think they put LVMH up at 500 billion euros. So it's not necessarily I just want to, I, the market, want to just park, you know, park this stuff in Amazon and Apple. Um, there are some speculative juices falling. We'll have to see if there's a rotation. Well, NVIDIA looks pretty pretty juicy to me pretty speculative to me who does nvidia oh nvidia uh well that one's at like 30 times sales or something uh, put that one in the chat too nvidia is at like 25 or 30 times 25 or 35 it's it's way up there i'd have to think of what it is and yeah you know there was there was a time here let's think about this I think three point eight six on the Greek. I think. Thanks, Chris. Wow. What's the number? Three point eight six. Yeah, sub four. Better than oh, the oh, U.S. Oh, Treasury. Greek tenure three eighty six. You know, I want to say the S and P five hundred tech was trading at seven times sales in March of two thousand. If it wasn't seven, it was six. And I think Nvidia is at twenty five or thirty. I, I mean, you just don't know. Twenty nine point three eight. Twenty nine point two eight. <laughs> 29.28. I, I don't do the, we don't do the bottom up. I don't know the name. I, you know, I don't, I don't know the direction that NVIDIA goes in next. 
And there is this notion here with the modern day corporation that maybe perhaps on account of margins, you can generate these higher price to sales ratios. Um, I don't know. We'll have, we'll have to see. I mean, I, the, the theory goes, I suppose, that you just don't need all this property plant equipment to run a mega cap tech or tech like company and that therefore some of these valuations are justified we'll see i mean you just start scanning overseas there's no shortage of stuff outside of the u.s trading at single digit pe multiples that's I've, I've got a good comment here from a gentleman <laughs> with a greek sounding name thanks demetrius kutsumpos hope i pronounced that correctly the biggest miracle in greece that you have a reformist that nobody would expect politically to survive in greece one of the best prime ministers ever got 40 percent this election is that, is, that a, is that a big majority in Greece? You don't you don't get the you don't get the you don't go to the fifty percent. Well, I don't. I haven't been following Greek. This gentleman will, will help me out. I'm sure, Demetrios, do your thing. The uh, the Greeks had a balanced budget before COVID, which is a lot more than what the Americans can say, and that's a far cry from the situation that they had. I mean, that's one of the things about this business, guys. You know, you sit, you're thinking about you know when you when you're as a kid or a teenager saying, I want to go into this business, that would have been me in the 1990s. And then flash forward 10 or 15 years, and you have to be this quasi expert in Greek politics, uh, <laughs> of, which, of which it's so difficult. And then you have to, you know, a few years later, you have to essentially become generally well-versed in the polarities of British politics, right? To try to figure out what moves the Brexit needle and, and that type of thing. And at this point, you, you need to be uh, a little bit of an expert on the machinations of Treasury to try to figure out the debt ceiling situation. <laughs> and then, of course, you need to also transition into being a regional bank expert. Yeah. Well, uh, that's Be before that, that an that? epidemiologist and <laughs> AI, AI expert. Well, oil, and... oil and gas, don't forget that. Energy, <laughs> got, energy got hot through there for a moment. How were you guys on the epidemiology during COVID? I thought I was pretty good. It's strong, but quite strong. <laughs> no, I don't, no, I It was interesting to see the social dynamic change with that one. And then now coming out of that, and that's part of the, the thing about being uh, you know, humble in the face of all of this. What was it I just pulled? Uh, it was Sydney shopping mall cap rates. I was writing this thing about Japan. This is this morning. Sydney shopping. Wait a minute, Tobias, where are you from? I'm from Brisbane, but I know I know about Sydney okay. real estate. Don't worry. So it was five and a quarter to seven and a quarter is is the uh, shopping mall cap rates. And so let's take a midpoint call that six and a quarter. And what I was doing was a spread over ten year Aussies, and then and then I was pulling uh, Toronto. I'm pretty familiar with Toronto. Was my old BMO days and the old Wisdom Tree Canada days. Um, cap rate on uh, Toronto office is like five and a quarter. And I'm just kind of thinking to myself, well, I don't know how much they're back to work uh, in Toronto. Uh, but I, I mean, it's not too much of a spread over what I can get over a 10 year. Yeah, you've had a few good chats on the. Did you have the? I've got uh, here on one of these screens. Let me see if I can. You know, it's, I was just doing the chart earlier. Oh, here it's over here on the. We're list. still like fifty percent occupancy, aren't we? We're, we're a long way from full occupancy pre pre COVID occupancy. Right. Well, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing with respect to, um, you know, trying to get your your arms around. And I do have it over here. I've got Toronto Class A downtown office property, two hundred thirty six over what I can get on a 10-year uh, Canadian government bond. That doesn't seem like a very good spread when I don't know if they're, if we're going to reach a societal outcome where we're going to go back in three days out of the five, and that's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then basically you could say goodnight to all those restaurants, a lot of those hotels, and basically these downtown districts in that particular city. you got to worry about Bay and Front and so on. Down here in Chicago, you know, we, we, we took a look at the Metro Rail data which is the way you would, um, if you're in our suburb, you would take the Metro into Ogilvy or Union Station and we're at like 50%. This is in like the month of March data, 50% of pre-COVID levels. Seeing the same thing with the Long Island Railroad out there, out east. And you take these, you know, some five handle on a, on a Toronto office 
uh, uh, cap rate situation. And Jay Powell's basically here putting overnight money at five. Yeah. The equation has changed. We need to have a little bit of humility with some of these risk assets and what we're willing to pay for this stuff. Yeah, imagine what uh, what will you be able to write the next lease for when you have to when it comes time when the lease is up. Like, there's no way you're going to get the same kind of rates, right? I mean, it just seems. I, I follow a few guys who real estate guys who say uh, we're buying this thing. You know, it's 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 at three point seven five, and, and it's like in a market where it's a five cap rate. And they're like, why didn't the last guy put it up? And it's like, uh, he's stupid. He hates money, so. <laughs> you'll be able to come in. You just you just pin that. You just put those rents up. You'll be okay. You get that five cap rate. Well, the other thing I you know with with office vacancy is the office vacancy in San Francisco is like twenty eight, something like that. Twenty eight percent. Oh yeah, like, yeah. Well, I've been in some offices that are quote unquote occupied. Let's say you walk into an office and it is occupied, and there's ten advisors in there, but nine of them are not there. So that is an occupied rep, you know, with 10 Merrill advisors, 10 UBS advisors, whatever, whatever the case may be. It's like, well, they're not there. I know that they're not there because I, I go into that office. What's the renewal going to look like on that? I mean, San Fran's been hit three ways, right? San Fran's had the tech, tech crash. So there's not as much VC around, then COVID, then they've just you know, the, I think that general mismanagement. Yeah. Just the, it's a, it was pretty rough when I, when I lived there, but I I gather that's a little bit rough than it was. So it's hard to justify going to the office. And then that's, that's a long way down. I'm I'm a little bit worried for San Francisco. The other thing is, well, the, the bank situation is very, it's very California centric. I mean, signature was a New York operation. Um, you know, they had been kind of they had been kind of flirting with Schwab, but Schwab beat it, beat earnings, and the Schwab seems to be I don't know what the what the name is doing, but it's basically been a West Coast situation. I mean, some Arizona in there, but and, and it is such a you know the world at this point. And how much does it matter where you're technically headquartered? But SVB truly was deep in wine country, deep in the Bay Area. First Republic too, although. First Republic and L.A. Situation. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's more, right. More like Southern Cal, but uh, and Jake, you got the Cal shirt on. What is that? What is that? Cal what? Just a generic California. Just, yeah. The issue that when you when you cross yeah, the border, when you live here, they just give it to you. It's the <laughs> that's what the inmates have to wear. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got um, population loss, uh, which. Is that 2020 and 2021. Now, part of that is, I mean, you, there were people who died. That's mm-hmm. part of the population loss. All 50 states had that. But then there is this well-known, um, you know, people leaving. And I, I'm in Illinois. We've got uh, we've had population loss every year since either 2013 or 2014. From the the census, the census collects the the annual information, and it's tough to tell what will stem that. We exact exact are not exactly a uh, a paradise of tropical weather. And so there's nothing that will propel you to stay. And the tax regime here in Illinois is prohibitive. Um, and so we see it with some frequency. We've had a lot of them. I mean, as you guys know, I mean, Miami has become this place to be here for a lot of these operations heading down there. So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe the, the Miami office scene and Miami apartment scene will, will stay elevated. But uh, Tobias, I mean, what were you saying about this uh, on the residential side? You saw seven hand one conforming mortgages. Yeah, I, th- I saw a tweet this morning that uh, mortgages had popped over 7% just. It was like 7.01%. Um, oh. That's a big number relative to where we were not that long ago. I don't think that house prices have moved much to sort of – house prices are down a little bit, but – nowhere near the move up in interest rates. I guess everybody's just hoping that they can hold on but it, and not going to have to move because it's it's going to be a, the, the math changes very significantly when you move. I think you've had a few good chats on that. I've got opinions. <laughs> Jake, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think what happens is we all kind of, um, we think about it like home price because we go to the other 
the other cycle and its home prices. And the thing about that that cycle was it, it was a very, very, uh, your motivation for buying a residential property may have been um, very different back then. Remember, there was a lot of don't miss the train. The train is- ah, that's, that's always the story. Yeah. It's always the story. It was Hope real though. You'd be locked up forever. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was, when that thing got started, I mean, I moved away from Florida uh, in the middle of it. Uh, but when that got started, there were a lot of, I know it doesn't make any sense to do it, but there were a lot of people doing things like buying a condo and then not even uh, renting it out and just doing it just for the condo price appreciation. This is down in Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County and so forth. I was like, well, that belies any possible reason for, for being long real estate as an investment. But people were doing it because it was very much that mentality. Whereas this was this was kind of like, uh, you want to get more space. I got to work from home. I mean, I've noticed that dynamic in my own home. I mean, when I came over to Wisdom Tree, it was February of 17. So I will oftentimes say I, I've got like COVID-17. You know, it was like I was working from home before COVID. And then when everybody, when COVID came around, it's like, well, I've been doing this for, for three years. Nothing's new for me. And what ends up happening is, is, and maybe this is, maybe this is something that supports it. I don't know. I, I think back to uh, when Jessica and I were newlyweds. I mean, what do you do? You move to Chicago. You got your job. So you're, you have a job. Your wife is still in school, right? That is a one bedroom apartment. There's no questions about it. That's a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> um, and then if there's a baby that comes, that's going to be either the same one-bedroom apartment or if you got any money, maybe you get a two-bedroom apartment. You start to say, well, what if you're both laptop warriors? You almost have to pony up for the extra square footage. So is a situation where the one-bedroom people are propping up the two-bedroom prices and the two-bedroom people are propping up the three-bedroom prices? Because I'm working from home. And I have to think that I need a lot more square footage to keep my sanity mm. than I and would. You, you got the four kids there too. <laughs> That's the other thing. Well, okay, take it from that perspective. You're working from home, and those kids come rolling in like a freight train at maybe three ten or three fifteen p.m. And so, in terms workday's of workday's time, yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Workday's yeah, over. Maintain that professionalism. You need to be more distant from them in the dwelling with greater soundproofing. And then the, the smaller the dwelling, the more difficult that is. So is it that these exorbitantly, I mean, just take the proverbial exorbitantly priced detached home in, in L.A. Wait, where are you guys? I'm in L.A. JT okay. is in Sacramento. That's okay. So L.A. and Sacramento, two housing markets that I certainly don't know compared to you guys. But by everybody's standard, ridiculously priced. So is it is it a question of this, the pricing goes up or the pricing goes down, or is it more of a question of, well, you bought this thing, you refied it three, you better like it whether you like it or not, because you can't do anything if it's a seven handle, you can't do anything if you're mortgaged. And we're all kind of stuck in place. And to the extent that the one person can swing leaving a 3% to go into a 7% and they list that four bedroom home that you desire because you're in the three bedroom home, you and everybody else need it because you're laptop warriors. Goes the goes one of the theories. I, I mean, I not that we're all laptop warriors, but it's one something of, to consider. One of the kind of striking uh, things over the last decade or so has been the persistence of profit margins. In just they've you know, there's lots of you can get a quote from Grantham, you can get a quote from Buffett and John Hussman as well to the effect that it's about the long run mean is about seven six six percent. But we've been way above that mean. So Jake's got some veggies today. James Montier had a swing at it in his most in his latest piece. So we do this, Jeff, we do these veggies, this veggie segment. Jake Jake has researched something. He's gonna let us know. And then uh Hussman has also left some comments uh about it from coming at it from a slightly different angle. Do you wanna take it away, JT? Yeah, absolutely. Um so <clears throat> I picked this one today because uh, you know it's it's very rare for someone in finance to admit when they're wrong. And I think we should celebrate that that intellectual honesty. Uh, and you know, 
on the show, we've often wondered, like, what the hell's allowed U.S. corporate profit margins to remain so elevated? Um, and as you referenced, Toby, I mean, Buffett back in 1999 was saying, uh, you know, you have to be wildly optimistic to believe that corporate profit margins as a percentage of GDP can, for any sustained period, hold much above 6%. And so, uh, you know, corporate profit margins were around 8% when he wrote that. And then they proceeded to drop to about 5% over the next few years, which is, that was 99, uh, you know, call it 2003-ish. Uh, and then they ramped back up to 9% in 2007 before then they crashed back down to about 2% in the GFC. And then they ramped quickly back up again and, and they've stayed elevated above 9% and peaking, I think, around 13%. Um, and so Monnier goes through, he wrote in 2012 in a, in a white paper that US profit margins were unlikely to maintain nosebleed levels where they were, right? And I think we kind of all looked at that same data set and sort of agreed with what he was saying, reversion to the mean. But what ended up happening? Over the next 10 years, the decade average was 9.5%, which is obviously well above that long-term average, which at that point was like, call it 1950 to 2012, average 6.3%. So he uses this like national income accounting identity to back into what the profit margin is. And just real quickly for, you know, if you're kind of a nerd following this stuff at home, but it's it's net investment plus dividends, minus household savings, minus government savings, minus foreign savings. So uh, it used to be when you looked at this this accounting identity that the investment part of that was was what drove the net investment drove was the primary driver of corporate profits. But then if you look at the chart, like, you know, government basically started ramping up big time. Um, and when you look at uh, what, what there's an interesting chart in here that shows like household savings is a percentage of, of GNP in the US. And it kind of like muddles along from like 1950 to, let's say, you know, maybe the late 70s at around, you know, between five and 10 percent always. And then it starts to drift downward and actually bottoming out sort of around 2005, six, seven period uh, down like at like three, two or three percent. And then it comes back up a bit. And then in COVID, it like shot up to like 25 percent. I think that was when I don't know if it was a combination of stimmy along with people trapped inside and they couldn't you know, go spend money. Uh, but then we've made up for it uh, by it's, it's dramatically dropped. And now it's the lowest ever. It's down like just barely above zero. Um, so, and what's, what's it, where that's actually like, he decomposes that a little further looking at the, the personal savings rate as a percentage of income and, and, and then breaks it up into like the top 1% of, of wealth versus the next 9% and then the bottom 90%. And what you see there is that the top 1% have actually been saving for most of that time and, and actually increasing their savings. So like this inequality is kind of what's played out here. It's been the bottom 90% that have not been saving and have just been barely trying to stay on the treadmill. Um, so then <clears throat> what the, the part that he points out that is that uh, that the government government deficits are what really were the made the difference in this time period uh, for profit margins. And um, between 1950 and 2011, the federal deficit averaged just a little under three percent of GDP. And in, in the last 10 years, it's averaged more than double this at 6.6%. And, and that's, you know, you would think like, oh, maybe that was just purely the pandemic spending, but it's not actually true. Like 2012 to 2019, the average was was 5.5%. So, I mean, obviously it went even more parabolic in, in the last couple of years as as we've been running these just absolutely insane deficits. Um, but, it, and it's really been, it's not the, like tax receipts have been roughly similar over that time period. It's been just purely the expenditures. That's what's driving the deficit, uh, and and those expenditures are primarily made up of health, Medicare, income security, and social security, and those have just been ticking higher and higher. Um, now he, he does say that in in an era of big government, if that's here to stay, then profit margins as a percent of GMP could remain higher than they than they were in the past. So maybe we're in a, a completely new regime of just like bigger governments. Um, and then, of course, you know, working at, at GMO, he's going to then get into valuation, uh, which uh, uh, right now it shows the cape at about 30 times. Um, and so he's based on that, he's expecting about 3% real from here. Uh, but then if you believe that the deficits are here to stay and that profitability is structurally higher because of that, then 
you know, the market's at 30 times. And that if you're what he then asks you to imagine is, you know, what if it was to go back to 20 times, which is still above the long term average for as valuations go? Well, that would represent a 5.8% per year headwind on returns, uh, which is you obviously, you know, pretty stiff headwind. Um, and then if you think about normalizing profit margins, uh, you know, that that would indicate that today's cape is really more around 45 to 50 times. Uh, so, you know, of course, if you believe both of those things mean revert, uh, then boy, you've really got a lot of headwinds in front of you. Uh, and but this is actually kind of a U.S. specific phenomenon. Uh, he then goes on to talk about the rest of the world, you know, and capes and uh, average in Japan. I think he's saying is around. It's a little under twenty, which to me still seems kind of high. Europe's like around fifteen, and then emerging markets are really more down around like twelve. Um, and then he breaks it out into growth versus value, and and the value side, like you know, deep deeper value, top, call it the like bottom cheapest 20% in the US is is relatively attractive as as Toby's pointed out every day of the, or every show for the last four <laughs> <Forever>. years <laughs> since the podcast launched That's, since inception um but uh one one place that he points out that might be especially interesting is emerging market value right now is on a seven times cape uh which is which is pretty cheap um that's that's like historically been a pretty good return if you can find things at 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 a seven times or lower cape i remember uh, an article a paper that said that if you're going to look at capes, you shouldn't compare them country to country. You need to compare them to their own mean. Mm. That's for anybody who's thinking along those terms. Sorry, JT, I cut you off there. No, that's, that's interesting. I, I mean, well, I wonder if uh, Meb Just would that, agree with that. With you know, yeah, that's interesting. He, he yeah, that's that's one of the thing. That's one of the cuts that he does for those for those funds. I've just yeah. got Husband yeah, had one one little bit to add, and then. I'll throw it to you, Jeff. Um, he looked at corporate profit margins, non-financial corporate profit margins, and he compared it to unit lab- labor costs as a share of output prices. And then he compares these two charts. And basically, there are two huge outliers on this chart. You have to go to his most recent piece, uh, which I don't have the name of it, but it's it's on his website right now. Um, the, there's a big outlier in 2000. Uh, it's kind of the early... 2000s, mid 2000s, and he says, um, note that there are two enormous outliers in the data. One preceded the global financial crisis and was driven by spending by consumers, not out of labor income, but out of equity cashed out of their mortgages amid a Fed induced housing bubble. The recent outlier was driven by trillions of dollars in pandemic deficits, which boosted co- corporate profits first directly through PPP subsidies and later indirectly as households spent down their own surpluses. So I think that's 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 pretty interesting. That would sort of describe a lot of the behavior that we've seen of those in those two bubbles. Hmm. I got so many different directions I could go here. <laughs> <laughs> the want to stay on the cape or talk about the kind of Jake? You mentioned something that I think might be a wealth disparity concept. Let's go cape. Let's do cape. I love Cape. Reason for comparing country A to country B at any given time and running those time series together is you could is that that would make sense because what you can then do is account for the vagaries in the changing of the regulatory bodies through the through the eras. So, for example, I got a picture of the chart with that Cape doing the big spike up around dot com and then doing our other spike here. But I want to say that even after the retracement in our own U.S. Cape, that it's at the 1929 peaks right now. And this is what we were talking about yesterday on a wisdom tree. We call these things the office hours at Wisdom Tree, where it's like this. It's like this, except it's for wisdom tree owners. And basically, one of the theories was this is what I pointed out was if you ever read all those Jesse Livermore books from 100 years ago, which, by the way, that's like perfect reading for getting your, your career started, just trying to figure out the way markets work. And of course, if you like momentum too, you'll love those types of books. And they're not <laughs> in some sophisticated fashion. It's, it's great. Like I want my kids, my kids to read the Jesse Livermore stuff. And you just think about in that era, the turn of the century type era, where there was the existence of a bucket shop. 
And what is a bucket shop? The bucket shop is essentially like an off-track betting, except rather than horses, you're wagering on stocks, and the whole thing is rigged. And so once they can figure out how lopsided they are on essentially bookmaking, this is like the Eagles versus the Giants, except it's will the equivalent of, I mean, let's say Anaconda. It's, it's spread bidding, right? They're just creating a spread. Yeah, and then and then and that spread. Well, that's the thing is you can drive. You got to get over the spread. So, and this is the this is the point. If if there had been a Microsoft, you know, probably some tobacco company or a railroad or something like that. Today, what's the bid ask on Microsoft? It's a penny. I don't I don't even know the price of Microsoft. I don't look at the stock. Let's say it's a hundred dollars. The bid is a hundred and hundred point oh oh. The ask is one hundred point oh one. And but back then the bid ask might have been fifty cents or a full buck because there was no liquidity. They're doing open outcry. The thing it's essentially an emerging market, and that therefore, under normal circumstances, where today twenty twenty three some stocks should be maybe ten times earnings. Maybe back then I needed a, a notable valuation discount to account for the fact that I have no SEC to speak of. My liquidity may not be there when it's time. I mean, think about one guy can cause the crash of 1907. Think about that. One guy did that. And then JP Morgan himself had to come in and bail everybody out, the guy. So one guy crashes it, one guy bails everything out. That's the system. And then as this goes on through the years, hat tip to WorldCom and Enron, which kind of throws the thesis out the window, you have much more confidence that you are essentially playing a broad market that is quote unquote money good or generally fraud free. Now I, I say that with FTX, just like, what did that just not happen? FTX was not something that just, ha- you know, so this will happen, but at a much lower frequency. And that may be part of the justification for reaccounting for comparing ourselves to 100 years ago, that, that type of concept. And then also the other thing I'll pass to you guys, trading costs. When, when we were young guys and E-Trade was billing $29.95, so you're looking at a $60 round trip, that was bargain basement because in the 70s and 80s you know you wanted to buy 100 shares of ibm what was the round trip on that 600 bucks something like that and that was in those dollars like the when i was born back in 81 somebody was paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars to sell their general motors and buy their ibm and now like we 29.95 that's considered outland now it's free yeah because it's as long as you're let be front run it's free yeah as long as, as long as you're willing to be front run as long as you're also willing to keep all that cash over there earning 0.01 percent while it sits idle in between you finding the next uh order to, to place and then well now that's that's part of the reason we have the bank walk now right where it's the nobody wants to earn their 0.01 anymore jeff you had a good chat about um 60s we had the uh, nifty 50 and then into the 70s we had the 73 74 bear market which you alluded to before then and then subsequent to that we had uh you, ha- you had a chart about the performance of different peas let us know how that value guys did through that period <laughs> i can picture that chart i, I gotta, I gotta test remember here. which charts you're talking about I mean, it's like uh building careers off of uh twitter charts yes there that's the one you're talking about is the ken french data the 69 to 79 data it's the only thing keeping me going at this point (laughs) (laughs) going back through that data Uh, you know one more more time for daddy (laughs) (laughs) yes broad market into pd files top quintile second quintile third fourth and fifth and you run it through the 1970s that was one where uh the low pe group were summarily punished the high PE group. The low PEs did something like a tripling in that decade, and the high PEs were annualized up maybe two or three percent. Of course, you had inflation that had peaked out at 14 percent in the latter part of the Carter administration. And the big question is, and this is where Cantro came in. Um, you guys know Cantro. Um, he's the he's the uh, I'm always quoting uh, what's his what's his acronym? Hope, oh, hope. Hope, hope acronym, yeah. yeah. Oh, hope, hope, yes, the housing a- acronym. Cantor came in and said, "Well, you know, you got to take into account for, for for various things. The value at the time was a a better quality, I believe, is what he said than than uh, than the, the value of the current era." Um, and I also put forth that it was because was it because of the inflation in the seventies 
or was it just because the nifty 50 were such growth stocks, such mega cap growth stocks that it was time for them to pay penance, if you will. Um, you know, the 68 to 70 bear was a grizzly one. We, I don't know why that bear market is kind of forgotten. I, I think this is just my hypothesis. I think that when we, and I don't know, is this a stretch? You guys tell me if this is a stretch. 73, 74. I mean, I guess you got Watergate going on in there, and that's something that the typical person would remember. But it was a pretty brutal bear market. The 68 to 70 bear market may have been forgotten a little bit more. A, because it's a little bit older, so time has passed a little bit more. But there were other things going on. There was a lot of social upheaval. I think the Vietnam situation was much more acute from 68 to 70, where it was by 73, 74, you're about ready to transition that from Vietnam into Laos and Cambodia with Jerry Ford. So I think it's kind of like, what can you focus on other than Watergate and the stock market crash? 70 was Kent State, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, 67 had been the summer of love. So I think it's much more of when I think of the year 68, 69, 70, I picture people with flowers in their hair going out to San Francisco on the Volkswagen bus. And so maybe I forget the 68 to 70 recession because of the historic things that were going on. I, I think this is why we don't really think about the, the Japanese bubble so much peaking in 89 because we've got Tiananmen and, and the Berlin Wall. And so maybe it's uh, diluted a little bit more. I, I don't know. This is just... Oil embargoes too, yeah. It was oil, oil and gas. That, didn't, that was cool. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't even mention that one. <laughs> that was like fourth thing in the, in the year. Not, <laughs> not notable. <laughs> and then REM came out with that song around 92, 93 with If You Believe They Put a Man on the Moon. Remember that one? Oh, you guys yeah, it's about Andy Kaufman. It was about Andy. Yeah, that's right. He's citing Andy Kaufman. Through, I don't know what this It's about Andy Kaufman, not about the moon landing. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. All right. That, that makes sense. Doesn't make any sense. Why is it called that? Oh, because did he do a flick about the moon landing or something? I think he was just the man know. in the moon. He was just the man in the moon. He died. I think, like 30 I think we've um, we've what what can you what can you take from the sort of the sixties and the seventies and stuff? Like we clearly we have a lot of the social unrest. We have uh, lots of lots of things going on. Oil and gas spiked a little bit, but we've got a war in the Ukraine. I think that when we when we look back, it's all. It, I'm glad that you pointed all that stuff out because we often forget that there's a lot of backdrop to it. And I think we've got the same sort of, it's, it's easy to get distracted by the amount of stuff going on in the background. We're a little bit macro on this podcast, a little bit more than we would, than we are work-wise because we can't discuss tickers and so on right. on this, just for everybody who listens at home and wonders why two value guys why spend guys so much time talking about macro. about macro or talking about macro. <laughs> we can't really talk much about tickers and so on because uh, for compliance reasons. So we, we tend to stray more into, and the closest I can get is to say, you know, to me, value looks cheap, and there are historical periods of time where you point out the 70s. It also happened in the early 2000s where value has a pretty good run. But if you look back now, it's as you point out before, from 93 until today, which is 30 years now, there's really only been one period of sustained value out performance, which was 2000 to 2007. So like, why would you – Why would you? what do you say to those 50-something-year-old advisors who say value will never rise again i mean i guess maybe maybe it was that it had been just so widely discovered by the time the early 1990s had had rolled around that it became crowded maybe that was part of what catalyzed the, the growth cycle i mean if it, if the growth cycle if we want to pin it it start going in 1993 what was that netscape ipo i think that was 95 maybe 94 i feel like it's 95 and that's oftentimes that thing where they say that's the beginning of the of at least the dot com bubble. Um, the, the Greenspan browser. slammed rates down. Greenspan got afraid. Uh, don't get me started. Drop rates. Uh, Netscape Navigator comes out. Dot com one point We're in our we're in our housing uh, bubble right now, not because of Jay Powell and Ben Bernanke, but because of Alan Greenspan forcing the hand of those latter guys. But I digress because you asked about value. But basically, Greenspan took us down to one. That created all of the speculative stuff that we were just talking about, buying this place down in Miami to flip it. Um, caused that massive 
overhang and the home builders wouldn't build anything after 2009 for all those years. Now there's no homes to go around. We're sitting here with 7% mortgage rates and nobody can leave. And it's because Greenspan went down to 1% to try to save the NASDAQ. That was a tightening or an easing cycle that commenced on January 3rd of 01. Um, and, and if you take, take it back to long-term capital where you try to bail those guys out too back in 98. So that's, it always goes back. The roots of any problem you have, you can always find many, many years before the current Fed chair. <laughs> Just look at four or five of them combined. I'm not but, prepared to let Bernanke off the hook. I think Bernanke and worry, Yellen... Don't worry, I'm not letting Bernanke off the hook. He wanted to. He also wanted to experiment with his studies from, from Japanese QE uh, to see if it would work. And then we created this yeah, situation. That was their term, right? Quantitative easing. Yeah, and so, I mean, you know, the Netscape 95, and then I oftentimes will think about Facebook in 2012, that IPO being maybe what kick-started this, this, this mania uh, into tech, into big cap tech. It's one of the, the things that has changed, the, the narrative changes, doesn't it? Where we, we oftentimes, we'll talk about the dot, we, I, just, I, I probably just said it myself, the dot-com bubble. But the dot-com bubble is only a fraction of what was occurring in that cycle back right. then. You yeah. forget General Electric was kicking butt in the 1990s. Right. That's a large cap. It was a large cap. Too. Yeah, it was a large cap bubble. That's right. Yeah, and and um, and Exxon. Exxon, which was not even Exxon Mo. Microsoft. All of those big companies got way overvalued. Cisco, like all that stuff. I guess they were more dot-com-ish, but there was a lot of that. I think the, the, most, common, the most recent cycle, JT and I, thrash ourselves about all this all the time all the time but in 2015 the the spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued was as tight as it's ever been in the data and jt wrote a great article about it and i put it on my blog and told everybody about it and then didn't think about the implications of that which is that probably the better companies if you're not paying as much for the better companies then they're going to do better than the cheaper companies yeah. we're in a different scenario now where the spread is as it's at historic widths uh, in some in some of the metrics, in my favorite metrics. And I think that the opposite happens on the other side of that. Yeah. I don't know what's driven it to this point, but clearly you've got to look in those portfolios and they're filled up with energy and other things like that. And who knows what energy does? Well, that's part of it. And hearkening back to the stuff from the 1970s is, you know, where we own West Texas Intermediate, $72 a barrel, something like that. Or are we going to stay at 72 or it's going to be a disinflationary bust and throws energy out the window and you got to struggle in your, in your value screens again. Is, is that what comes to pass? Um, but I'll tell you, when, when we run the time series inside our software and wisdom trade, you do something like a U.S. large cap growth, like S&P 500 growth, run it against, say, emerging value. We've got, see, what we're doing is we're putting ETFs around indexes. I mean, we're really an index house at wisdom trade. We've got all these these multi-decade indexes. Those gaps between you and cap growth, overseas don't want to touch it for the last 15 years, emerging value, that stuff has opened up notably at extreme wides, 0809 type wides. We've got, you know, you talk talk about like Japan. We're running this stuff this morning, shareholder yield. You know, you talk about Med, talk about Med favor, right? Shareholder yield, where you're combining the dividend yield and the buyback yield. People, well, I, I, maybe you guys probably know, but it's something like 3.9 in Japan. It's 3.7, 3.8 for the S and P 500, and it was always lower than the U.S. You couldn't get any yield or anything, and then you have this whole catalyst. You're talking about value, but just are we talking about unloved companies? One of the catalysts is what basically what they're saying over there in Tokyo is. You don't get your price to book up, up above one by 20, by 2025. We're going to delist you. So you've been <laughs> now we'll see if they do that, but that's a real catalyst to say, okay, what are we doing with all this cash sitting over here in the balance sheet? We're going to throw off a dividend or we're going to actually buy back shares where, and then you don't have the politics of the buyback either. Cause we got the 1% buyback tax here in the U S now going to maybe four, or at least that's what the Biden administration is talking about over in japan it's the opposite like why aren't you buying back shares yet that i mean i guess that's their case they haven't done it um but maybe that gets a shareholder yield into the force on that country and then maybe maybe that's the value play at least that's where my mind is 
I don't think it's any accident that that Buffett, when he was talking about what he talked to the the five big trading companies that he owns, yeah. when he went and talked to them, he said, "If you guys have any deals that you are interesting, give us a call. We might be able to help finance them." And I think it has to do with the fact that, like you said, low price to books. M&A is, is, could be very accretive potentially in those type of scenarios. And so I'm sure that Buffett's licking his chops with the idea of being able to put money to work there. Yeah. Yeah. We had uh, Jeremy pulled, I think Jeremy found one of our indexes had 59% of all the names had a uh, price to book south of one and price to book is its own animal. I mean, you, it's, it might not be the most fair thing to, to put uh, what we call it meta these days, but Facebook on a price to book, there is no, tangible book the whole book is the proverbial walks in the front door and gets on the elevator at the end of the day that's the book value of these companies um there's no property plant and equipment to speak of but they're, they're trying to light a fire under these under these these corporations in japan basically saying look these cross shareholdings this is incestuous this is this is absolutely not shareholder friendly you, you know you talk about profit margins jake What's one of the inputs if you take a DuPont model on a return on equity? Mm-hmm. The first thing terrible there is a profit margin. Well, it pales in comparison to U.S. profit margins. So you need to become more lean and mean. Um, you know, you can increase leverage by getting some of that cash off the balance sheet. That's how you can boost these ROEs, and then that's how you can propel yourself with a price to book north of one by twenty twenty five. Or else, I, I don't know if it's an empty threat though. Well. Yeah, you're going to delist them all. But I do like that there's kind of this threat, like become more shareholder friendly or it's trouble. And this is the world's, well, I guess it's the third largest stock market behind China. Uh, maybe that's where the where the the value opportunities arise. Could be. Buffett spoke pretty loudly buying. But what 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 why do they need financing? Do you think if they like if the if the if the issue is that they are Hoarding cash, yeah, lazy balance sheets. I don't know because there's well, always a bigger fish sometimes to eat than maybe your balance sheet could support. Yeah, and 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 if I'm not mistaken, Berkshire did issue yen debt because he he didn't want to be long the yen because the yen had completely fallen out of bed. And I mean, I guess it was it was April. Was it yeah, April? it was a positively carried trade. <laughs> he had re- He's he had clever that old fuck. Yeah, he he like 24 months ago, and then it was in April that he upped the stakes in all five of them to something like 7 point something percent, 7.4, something like that. But you buy five Japanese companies, now you're long the yen. So he issued, if I'm not mistaken, Berkshire issued yen debt as an offset yeah. to that. Now, that's an interesting scenario over there. I don't know, I, Tobias, I don't know how much you're living over on Twitter, but man, the, the wage dynamics in that country have become notably appealing because the yen, the yen was at 78, uh, like 11, 11 years ago, 11 years ago, I think. What, where is it at? 138? Where, where's the yen? Here, let's forex this thing. 138? 138.47 on, on the yen. So the yen has fallen out of bed completely. And as we know, Japanese wages do this. They, they don't go up. The, the number when I calculated it last was, uh, 0.9% appreciation annually, and U.S. wages are 3.9%. Mm. So if the American worker from yen strength has gotten a 3.9% wage increase every year, the Japanese has gotten a 0.9% every year. Compound those for 11 years, and then also wipe out the currency. And what you have is this yawning gap. It's something like the average wage in the U.S. is 75000 and in Japan it's something like 31000 And it's not mm. too much higher now than what you can find in some of the Eastern Bloc nations. Wow. So, yes, Japanese wages are like what you can find. I don't think they're that low, but they're not too different, I believe, from what you may pay in the Eastern part of Germany, for example, or Romania or Hungary, or anything that used to be under under the, the thumb uh, of the regime back there before the Berlin Wall came down. And so that is, uh, maybe that's the bull case. That's a pretty compelling pitch. Well, there's profit margins, Jake. Their their capacity to suffer, I think, is uh, is a pretty admirable level. Um, so it seems like maybe they've been 
<laughs> been suffering a little bit as a as a as a working population. Let's call it. Gents, we've we've uh, we've made it to full time. We Gotta did blow it. The, blow the whistle. Blow the full time hitter. Thanks, so uh, Jeff Weniger. Thanks so much. Uh, Wisdom Tree. If folks want to get in touch with you or, or follow along with what you're doing, what's the best way to do that? Well, there's wisdomtree.com. Wisdom Tree had we have we write white papers, so a lot of the stuff that I'm citing, I you know, I just going around in my head just because I'm writing papers on this stuff. You got the Twitter feed. We write a daily blog. Uh, what do we have? Something like 90 ETFs, 90 billion USD in management. Been running these things for 17 years. We like to believe Wizard Tree is a household name. I think at this point, certainly in the industry, it is. It's not BlackRock or Vanguard by name recognition, but we think we punch pretty well. And I think that in terms of a uh, a punch on research, I think our stuff is pretty good. I think it's pretty darn good, says the guy who writes a lot of it, right? So- <laughs> <laughs> Self-assessed. It's 10 I'll out of 10. I'll link that up in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll Thanks, be Jeff. back.